Okay, well, we, we are going to jump into um, part 11 of our series, Love and Hate. I promise this series will eventually end, but not quite yet. We've got about three weeks left, so we're going to use August to, to wrap up this series. I want to give you just a little bit of a background of where we've been. We spent uh, the first half of the series defining love and hate and talking about how God wants to um, correct us for our benefit. And so, first of all, understanding love through the lens of how God defines love and becoming the kinds of people who not only receive and experience God's love in our own lives, but learning to love like he does, learning to love people well the way God does. We also talked about how um, there actually are some things that God hates. But when God talks about hate, it's always through the lens of his love. He loves us so much that he hates things that destroy us or rip us off. And so some of, the, some of the difficult things that we've talked about or faced along the way are things that God hates that destroy and rip people off. And so we spent the first few weeks defining that. And then we talked about learning to put ourselves in a position where we let God speak to us in our own hearts and lives about things he wants to change in us and positioning our lives to hear from him and, and be able to acknowledge when we're wrong. God, I'm sorry, I blew it. And receive, receive his correction as a sign of love, not judgment. He's not judging me when he highlights something in my life that needs to change. He's, he's a loving father who's saying, this is going to be good for you. And so he brings correction to help us. And then we simply can walk out confessing, recognizing where we've blown it, repenting, which means turning away from that, but also toward something, towards him, and then receiving his forgiveness. Some of us are just really bad at forgiving ourselves when God's already forgiven us. And so learning to receive that. Then we spent several weeks talking about our relationship within the church walls. So that can be our interactions with each other here in this place. Um, but just even bigger picture, we're a part of a larger family of God that exists in our city, in our country, and in the world. And there are things we disagree on. And so we talked a lot about how do we work through those things? What happens when it's just relation, it's relational problems where we've, we've, We've hurt someone, wounded someone, disappointed someone, um, or maybe we've been hurt or wounded and disappointed. How do we walk that out in our, our relationships? Uh, then we talked about things we disagree on, theological things, doctrinal things about who God is and what he thinks about stuff. How do we sort through that? How do we learn to have healthy, loving conversation as we're sorting through things and, and learning what's true and wrestling through complicated issues? And then finally, we talked about a couple weeks ago, because we took a pause last Sunday from this series, but a couple weeks ago, we talked about false teachers and the position that people in authority have to influence others and, and what we need to do when there's teaching that is counter to the gospel, counter to the word of God and how we walk that out. And really briefly, we, we said you... You kind of call it out, first of all. You recognize it as wrong, and there's opportunity to bring correction. We see in Scripture people that were teachers, others would come along privately first and then publicly if needed to correct them. And sometimes people receive that correction. It was a mistake, or they, they learned something new. We're imperfect people. And so we start with that gracious attitude of correcting someone gently and then if we realize a, a teacher, a leader is dug in on something that is counter to God's word, after we've called it out, then we start kind of warning people and we say, watch out. 
watch out for this because it's dangerous. It's going to miscommunicate who God is and what his heart is, and it can be harmful. And then finally, until that person is ready to change and walk in the truth, we keep them out. We don't, we don't let people hang around and identify themselves as something that they're not. It's important because if we validate people that are teaching something that's not true, it does great harm to the people that they influence. And so there's a higher standard for teachers. So that, that's kind of what we taught last time. So these next three weeks, we're going to talk about how we interact with the culture that we live in. So we talked about ourselves individually, the church, and now culture. How do we interact with the culture? Um, and I want to give you a framework to, to, to see this through. And then we're going to jump into this morning's message. There is understanding where I stand on an issue personally. And then there's how I interact with, with my community, with the people around me. So I have a, a, a core system of beliefs and understanding about things that God says that he's for and against. And then I learn to interact with people in a loving way and a truth-filled way. What do I believe? How do I interact? Does that make sense? That's the framework we're going to learn this through. So this morning, um, we're going to talk about... Um, Kind of, kind of a grid or a way that we approach and live life that is pretty common in our culture. Um, next week, we're going to talk about sex and gender issues. That's what we're talking about next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, uh, we're going to talk about power and some issues related to that. Okay, so that's where we're going the next few weeks. So this morning, um, we're going to talk about money to a large degree, but even kind of bigger than that, it's just the lens that we look at life through. So we're going to tackle three things, busyness, anxiety, and greed. Busyness, anxiety, and greed. Let's start with busyness. Um, we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Jesus is traveling around and um, in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it picks up and says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. We live in a busy society. It's not just that we're busy. We almost hold busyness up as something good. We have somehow equated busyness to things like hardworking. We've equated those. We've equated busyness with being successful. In fact, we can even compare ourselves with each other based on how full my life is, how much I have going on, how much I do, and somehow that equals I'm a successful person. Jesus is saying that might actually be ripping you off. That might actually be dangerous or harmful to you. Busyness is often just a distraction from what's important. Do you notice what he said about Martha? 
It wasn't like Martha was intentionally wasting her time. Jesus just came to her house. Have you guys ever had that like unexpected guest, the, uh, the uninvited visitor? My mom just did this to me yesterday morning. <laughs> Amy's out tubing with some friends. I've got all the kids at home. I'm throwing my mom under the bus because I feel like I can't. Okay. There's plenty she could out me on. So I'm at home. Listen, okay, it's probably noon. I'm in my pajamas. The house is a mess. Like the kids are just having hang with dad day and we're not doing anything. We've maybe had breakfast. I mean, we're being so lazy. And she knocks at the door. I hear Ashley, grandma's at the door. Oh no. The Martha in me was like, let's keep her out for like 15 minutes so I can run around and like fix everything. And then I'm thinking, Amy's gonna know that my mom popped by and I didn't have the house looking good, right? I'm doing all that. I, I drift into Martha mode so quickly. I, I can do this. Of these three topics this morning, I'm the guiltiest of being busy. But we can get wrapped up in feeling like this is important. I mean, if Jesus is showing up at your house, of course it matters that everything be just right. I need to put my best foot forward. And so Martha is like, let me get the house in order. Let me get it looking nice. Jesus is there in the other room and she's taking care of all this stuff that he doesn't even care about. He's like, Martha, hey, come over here and hang out with me. But she's wrapped up and caught up in the busyness. Busyness is a distraction from what's really important. Busyness is also about competition. How many of you guys would say I'm a pretty competitive person? If you noticed, my hand was up before I even asked the question. Okay. Now, the truth is, I bet, a, I bet there's also a large number of people that feel like I'm actually not that competitive. I'm not that competitive. However, if you find yourself regularly comparing yourself to someone else and feeling like maybe you don't measure up or you're justifying what you're doing and feeling like they don't measure up, that's competition. I'm not able to be at peace about just my life. What's Jesus calling me to do? What's he also telling me I don't have to do? Instead of comparing, let me just come to him and say, Jesus, what is it that you have for me? Now, he will have us serve. He will have us work. I'm not, I'm not saying be lazy, but I'm saying we can get wrapped up in an attitude of busyness. And for many, as a, many of us, we live these anxious lives feeling like we can never keep our head above water it's because we valued busyness as opposed to what's necessary, what's important, what does Jesus have for me? Not what makes me feel like I'm measuring up to other people. Is this making sense? Like notice what Martha does. I mean, she does both these things. Don't just, don't just take this as this is Jake's opinion. Specifically, if you look at verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving. She was missing out on something more important. And then what that led her to do, I mean, she's annoyed with Mary. Now, maybe she had gone to Mary and complained to her directly, but that's not said in the text. She goes and tells on Mary. She goes and tells on her sister to Jesus. And what's she doing? She's comparing what Martha is doing with what Mary is doing. And she's telling on her, Jesus, look at her sitting there, not helping, being lazy. Would you tell her to get up and help me? 
She was distracted and she was comparing. And that's something very dangerous that, that we can fall into. Here's a, here's a really good question to kind of ask yourself if you've been influenced by the culture that we live in. If you've been drawn into living this busy, anxious life. Do you control your calendar or does your calendar control you? It's a really good question that you can ask yourself. Do I feel like stuff's just piling onto that thing and I just have to do it to keep up? Or am I intentional about what I'm saying yes to and what I'm saying no to? Am I learning to make room for what's necessary? There's, there's a few basic things that are necessary. Let Jesus teach you what that is. I am, I am notorious for moving quickly through a slow morning, a quiet morning, time with Jesus, time in prayer to get to all the stuff that I have to do. And I keep learning this lesson over and over again. I keep having to learn this lesson over and over again. But what I've found to be true is when I stop and I make time for what's necessary, somehow miraculously the time stretches. When I, when I slow down and I spend the time I know I need to spend at Jesus' feet in his presence, somehow the day just falls into place when I thought it was going to be out of control. The same thing's true with my family. When I prioritize my wife and my kids, some of those core relationships above all the other stuff, things tend to fall into their place. Busyness is not something to be celebrated. Busyness is not something to be glorified. It's not a way to feel like I'm important and valuable because I've got so much work to do in my job or because I've got so many people to see because I'm so well-known and, and popular, what, whatever it is. I don't know what busyness looks like for you. This also isn't just about whether you're a busy person or not. It's a condition of the heart. Am I busy? Am I anxious? Am I unsettled inside? I can have a lot to do in a given day and not feel busy and anxious. I can feel at peace because I'm running at a pace that's appropriate for me. I can also have a day where there's not that much going on and I can feel overwhelmed because I'm caught in kind of an, an anxious or busy attitude. Can anybody relate to some of these things? And so I just want to encourage you, don't, don't let our culture lie to you that it's valuable, important if you're super busy and running around all the time. Or lie to you that you always have to take the job opportunity. You always have to take whatever that thing is. And we just become hamsters on a wheel. This seeps down into us when we don't even realize it. Let's step out of the busy and step into what Jesus has for us. Let's be like Mary and let God invite us out of the busyness. All right, number two. It kind of goes along with busyness, but Jesus also talks a lot about being anxious. Being anxious. And so let's, let's address this. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, this is in the midst of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus is kind of teaching through the Beatitudes, and then he starts telling parables and stories and giving examples. Um, and this, this, whole, this whole thing that Jesus is talking about, he's inviting us into a way of life. And so in the midst of that, he addresses this issue of being anxious. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, 
nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What he's saying is you are more valuable than they. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You know what I think is interesting about that? If you're anxious, you can actually do the opposite. Anxiety and stress harms your body physically. It harms your body physically. So not only can we not add an hour, we might subtract a few if we're not careful. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, he will not much more clothe you. Will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. He's saying, this is the culture you live in. An anxious culture that is wrapped up and concerned with these issues. So don't be like that. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, there are three specific categories that Jesus gives here that cause anxiety. The first one is comfort. I don't know if you realize this or not, but our, comforts, our culture is obsessed with comfort. It's crazy the stuff that we will spend money on to be comfortable. I mean, hello, a Snuggie exists. How weird is that? Like, we are obsessed with comfort. How can I get it? How can I get more of it? And part of what we're being told all the time is, you aren't comfortable enough. You might actually be comfortable, but you're being convinced you're not, so you can pursue something else that will make you more comfortable. Seriously, this happens all the time. This is the environment we live in. Jesus never promised us comfort. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. You will be uncomfortable. It's, it's a natural part of this life is living with discomfort. What you can have is contentment. What you can have is God's provision. You can have his provision. And that's what Jesus is talking about in these passages. He's saying you can get so wrapped up in arranging for your own comfort that you're missing out on the fact that God's going to take care of your needs. He's going to provide them. You have a good father who will provide for you. And so you can learn to be anxiety-free by getting off that treadmill of chasing comfort all the time and instead trusting for God's provision in your life. Okay, the second thing he points to is about control. He points to control. I'm trying to arrange for my future. I'm worried about tomorrow. I'm thinking through every aspect of my day and trying to be in control of it. I mean, that, that's literally what he's talking about when he says, can you add a single hour to your span of life by being in control? He's showing you how out of control you really are. If we could just accept that we weren't in control, we'd see a lot of anxiety dissipate. If I didn't have to chase comfort, if I didn't have to chase control, my anxiety would begin to 
to dissipate. I can replace control with trust. That's Jesus' invitation. Do you trust me that I'm good and that I'm in control and that I'll provide for you and I'll take care of you? Or do you feel like you have to arrange for every good thing in your life? Or do you feel like you have to arrange for every good thing in others' lives? I'm terrible at that. I try to be Jesus for myself, for my wife, for my kids, for people in the church and in the community. Like, I'm a terrible Jesus. I'm going to let everybody down. Jesus is good enough at being Jesus. I can just be Jake. There's very little I can actually control, but I can trust. I can trust him. And so that, that's what Jesus invites us into. Not fighting for comfort, not fighting for control. And then finally, the third thing he's addressing here is appearance or image. When he's talking about clothing, he goes from, from talking about clothing to talking about um, how beautiful like the flowers in a field are. And then he brings up this guy, Solomon. And without getting into a whole explanation of who Solomon is, he was the wisest guy who ever lived and he was incredibly wealthy. And so he was arrayed in that wealth. And God's like, listen, the most elaborately dressed guy, the guy that was putting off the best image of himself, famous, popular, rich people from other countries were like, I got to go check that out. I got to go see if this is legit. We're, our culture is obsessed with appearance. We're wrapped up in it. Whether that's literally what I'm wearing and how I look, my body image, it's also just what people think about me. What image am I communicating to people? I'm just going to go ahead and dip my toes right in it. Can we do that? Should we do that? Okay. Now, I'm, I'm not against, I'm not against taking pictures. Okay, I'm not against that. I'm not against sharing pictures with friends and family and loved ones. That's a good thing. But guys, we will spend more time trying to frame the shot, capture the moment, plan the entire moment around the picture we're going to take that we miss the moment. And the picture captures the two seconds when my kids were all actually smiling at the same time and not the 10 minutes of mom and dad screaming at them and they're hitting each other and spitting on each other and, you know, Micah sticks out his tongue just when we thought it was perfect. Like, we will spend so much time and energy trying to get this perfect shot and image that I can then tell everyone else about. Check this out on my Instagram and Facebook. Look how it's just so. But I feel the pressure to do that because everybody else is doing that. And I, I've got to give off this image that things are together and they're under control and my family's happy and life is good and whatever that pressure is that we're trying to live under, man, it's ripping us off. What if we were just in the moment, enjoying the moment, at peace? What if we were less worried about appearance and more worried about character? See, that's what Jesus is really talking about. Who I really am, when I'm at peace with God and I'm settled and secure, who I really am will come out. And the people that really know me will know that. And you know what? Those people know me well enough to know that guy's got an ugly side too. <laughs> talk to my best friends. Talk to my wife. They, they see the good and the bad. But let character speak for who we are as opposed to trying to arrange our appearance and how we're perceived by others. 
Does this ring true for you guys at all? I mean, this is, this is the culture I find myself living in, wrapped up in staying busy, wrapped up in trying to make myself comfortable all the time, trying like crazy to be in control of my life, worried about how I'm perceived or thought of or viewed by people. And Jesus is saying, I want to set you free from all of that. I want to set you free from that. And so if you will, if you will rest in what's necessary, be in my presence. If you will trust me instead of trying to be in control, if you'll let me be your provider, if, if you'll trust that who I'm making you to be is good and glorious and wonderful. The Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We can rest in that truth. We can rest in that. All right, number three, last one, greed. And there's a whole lot that we can say about this. Um, the scripture talks a lot about greed. The scripture talks a lot about the pursuit of, of finances, not just because money is inherently bad, it's not, but the scripture talks a lot about this being something that we chase after, we pursue after, we build our lives around. And, and I do think it's interesting, you know, there's some topics we're gonna get to in this series that are important and they're big issues. But I think often in our culture, we have overlooked the danger of greed as it relates to the church and our culture. We see other moral issues and go, man, those are biggies. And we might even disagree on them, but they're important. One of our biggest issues with greed is I tend to think of other people when I think of greed. I tend to think of other people. So let's, let's dive into this. And before you think about other people, as Jesus is talking about this, let's maybe invite him just for a moment to talk to us personally and see what he might say. All right, so let's check this out. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And so Jesus is surrounded by a group of people. And in verse 13, um, it begins and says, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to Jesus, Take care, or sorry, Jesus said to him, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Then Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, if you notice what this guy was after that was increasing his storehouses, he was, he was after being able to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He was after all the things Jesus was promising in the last story that we told. But he was after pursuing them and gaining them for himself instead of trusting God. But there's actually two types of people in this story, if you notice. It starts with the guy who's frustrated with his brother. 
And Jesus addresses the fact that he's coveting what his brother has. Then Jesus tells the story about a guy who's got a lot. You know what this tells me? The amount of money in my bank account does not determine whether I'm a greedy person or not. I can have little and be greedy, or I can have a lot and be greedy. It's a mindset. It's a mentality. Jesus is saying one of the ways that you can recognize greed in your life is if, is if you're coveting what other people have. Are you able to see what other people have and be glad for them that they're enjoying it? Or do you find yourself judging them for having it or wondering why they've got it and you don't? That's, that's a sign of greed. It's a sign of greed. It's also a sign of greed if you are trusting on your own ability to provide for your life to secure your future. It could be gone like that. Your stuff could be gone like that. Your life could be gone like that. What am I trusting? What am I valuing? See, this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew's gospel, chapter 6, verse 24, when he said, No one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money is the English translation there. If you go back to the King James, it uses the word mammon. But we don't know the word mammon. That's kind of a weird, strange word. But Jesus is talking about more than money. That word, very specifically, it means that in which one trusts. Mammon, that in which one trusts. In other words, am I trusting in my wealth, in my possessions, in my money, in my ability to make money? Is that where I'm investing my trust and hope? Or is it in Jesus? And Jesus is saying, you will trust one or the other. It's impossible not to. There's no middle ground. You're either trusting him or you're trusting your stuff and your ability to get stuff. And he's saying, trust me. I've got you covered. I love you because I'll take care of you today, right? That whole passage on anxiety. But also he's saying, I've got your future in my hands. You're investing in what's eternal. As long as you're on this earth, you're mine. When you breathe your last, you're mine. We're promised an upgrade. It's pretty cool. It doesn't matter how poor or wealthy I am on this planet. If I belong to Jesus, when I transition to heaven, I've moved up in life. That's truth. It's the truth according to Jesus. What are we trusting? Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28 says this. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. I want to I wrap up this morning taking about five minutes, and I want to read to you two fatherly warnings on greed. Two fatherly warnings. And I want to encourage you, nobody's testing you on this next Sunday, but if you want some homework, write down these two passages, because I'm reading portions of them. And I would encourage you to sit with these two passages and just let the Lord speak to you about, about where you are. God, do I, do I covet? Am I greedy? Am I, am I wrapped up in trusting and providing for myself? Or God, am I trusting you? Invite him to talk to you first about this. And so I'm going to read portions of these. So one is in the Old Testament and one is in the New Testament. They are both fatherly advice. One is by Solomon, 
writing the book of Ecclesiastes and talking to his son. And one is a letter from Paul to his, his protege, Timothy, young Timothy. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, that's one of the passages you can go read later. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, five I'm going to read verse 10 and verses 18 through 20. You can read the whole thing later. Here we go. This is, remember, we talked about uh, Solomon earlier. Really wise guy, really rich guy, okay? And this is what he had to say. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. You'll never feel like it's enough. This is also vanity, a waste. Verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. If you read the whole passage, he's referring to toil as just your, your daily work. Just being satisfied in God, I worked hard. I gave you my work. I gave you my attitude and how I approached the day. Now I'm content with whatever that provided for me, much or little. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in all his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Doesn't that sound awesome? Yes. I don't even get caught up in, in remembering all the worries and cares of this life because God has provided a sense of joy. What, what is it that Solomon is describing here that produces this? He's describing having gratitude. Notice he doesn't say to the rich guy, get rid of all of it. He doesn't say wealth is inherently bad. It's our attitude towards it. And so his outlook is to be grateful for whatever you have. If you've been given much, be grateful. If you've been given little, be grateful. Be satisfied. Be at peace with what God has given you. Don't get wrapped up in the pursuit of happiness. Receive God's joy because you've learned to live with a sense of gratitude. So that's what Solomon emphasizes, gratitude. Now, Paul emphasizes that too, but he adds something else. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to read verses 6 through 10 and verses 17 through 19. Paul writes and he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It is a snare, or they fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. See, it's a weird thing that gets deeper. It sucks you further in. If you live with an attitude of greed, of, of trying to gain, you will gain more and long for more. And it will actually plunge you into a depth, a pit. The picture there is like sinking into deep water. And you get wrapped up in desiring things. And when you get it, it doesn't satisfy you. And you're just on to the next thing. And it's, it's literally like getting a bigger and bigger stomach and being always hungry and never satisfied. That's the picture. He continues on. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or sorrows. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age 
charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, so not just rich in finances, be a faithful, hardworking dude. Be generous and ready to share, for thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. A better translation is, or they lay hold on eternal life. Notice, Paul's not saying it's wrong to have stuff. He's, he's adding to the idea of gratitude and he's adding to it generosity. Be a generous person. Be willing to share. Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? Does the pursuit of stuff own you? Or are you at peace because you recognize God as your provider? Then what you have is a gift. And if it's just food and clothing, you're content. And if you've got wealth and possessions, great. You benefit from them and you bless others with them. The cure for greed is gratitude and generosity. That's the cure for greed. By the way, that also takes care of a lot of needs that are around us. When we learn to be joyful givers, it does something powerful in our own hearts and it makes an impact in our community. We can be difference makers for God's kingdom. A lot of the problems that we see in society, if the church would practice this, those needs would be met. We wouldn't need to argue over how the government's gonna take care of poverty if like the church rose up and just took care of it. By being grateful, generous people who trust God with what we have and who make a difference in other people's lives. God wants to set us free from living busy, anxious, greedy lives. And whether we see it or not, we are surrounded by this in our culture. It's permeated us. I mean, it's in like our founding documents, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm great with life and liberty. I think Jesus is all about that. Pursuing happiness is a trap. It will cause us to never be satisfied. I can have peace. I can have godly contentment. I can trust him to provide for all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you take care of us. Thank you that you love us enough, God, to invite us out of these things. Lord, you tell us that we can be in this world and not of it. That we are almost, we're kind of like aliens in this world is how you describe it. Lord, some of this stuff is foreign to us. We live busy lives. We live with anxiety. God, we spend our life trying to arrange for our future, for our provision, for our comfort. We're worried about how we're perceived. God, we're trying to um, arrange for our own well-being and how we approach our finances. God, would you, would you teach us to be like Mary and focus on what's necessary? God, would you help us to live in that place where we trust your provision and we're worried about our character and not about how we're perceived? God, finally, as it relates to our finances and arranging and pursuing our own comfort and well-being, God, would you help us to be people who are grateful for what we have and generous with what we have? Jesus, we need you to do any of this. Apart from you, we can't live this way. 
but thank you that we're not apart from you, that you're with us and you're in us and you love us. It's by your power and in your name we pray this morning. Amen.